Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Ian Morris, co-creator of hit British comedy The Inbetweeners, about his latest show and the challenges of trying to pen one-liners amid a pandemic. And Danny Fenton, chief executive of Zigzag Productions, discusses the UK Indies' new female football talent format, plus his fears for the future of the TV business in the wake of COVID-19. Ian Morris was a commissioning editor at UK broadcaster Channel 4 before striking out on his own to try his hand at comedy writing, together with producer Damon Beasley. With credits between them, including The 11 O'Clock Show and Peep Show, the pair broke through with their first project for Channel 4's E4 Youth Network. The Inbetweeners debuted in 2008 and went on to run for three seasons and two movies, made by the duo's Boac Productions, a company they later sold to Zodiac Media. Having established a new outfit, Fudge Park Productions, their latest series football-focused comedy The First Team, debuted earlier this year on BBC Two, backed by BBC Studios. Morris spoke with Clive Whittingham about the show, the Inbetweeners' circuitous route to television, channels changing attitudes to comedy, the brutality of social media, and the challenges of penning one-liners amid a pandemic. Hello, my name is Ian Morris, and I'm the co-creator of The Inbetweeners, and also of the recent sitcom The First Team, and I directed a film called The Festival, and I suppose I was a script editor on Peep Show for many years. That's the ones you might have heard of. The First Team One is a, uh, a football comedy. Was that always a, a dream, or something that you've always had in mind to, to write about that sport? No, I think it, was, we, it wasn't, actually. We, we wanted to write about... Damon and I were kind of thinking about what we liked about the Inbetweeners and one of the things we liked about it was writing about young men and kind of you know I guess the internal workings of masculinity if you like and so when it was during the second season of the Inbetweeners we were thinking about what we could do next because we didn't really think it would come back and uh, we thought okay we're quite you know maybe we've got something about you know writing dialogue between friends and and you know not being too heavy handed with the dialogue but getting across emotion and so we tried to think about other male dominated environments and really couldn't come up with any again which is a good thing I think really and then I was on a plane to LA to see my then girlfriend now wife and I sat next to a footballer called Damien Delaney who actually played for QPR at the time and I didn't recognise which is sort of embarrassing we got chatting before the plane had taken off and he said the season finished yesterday I don't I'll talk about anything but football I was like yeah fine no problem and so we started talking and after about an hour I couldn't resist but, and, it, and it was just really interesting hearing about his life and his life was very different from how I'd imagined footballers lives. sort of I think he was 26 27 at the time maybe and it was just very different and, you know, and his whole life had been very different and I thought actually there's something in this there's something in a kind of younger you know if it's the next stage of the in-between of his life the kind of younger men insecure if you like so that was that's what came out and actually we you know we didn't include any football in the show deliberately we wanted it to be about a kind of workplace sitcom really about men rather than a sitcom about football it's a it's a football show but it's not but it's not a football show like you say because there's no football in it so how was the the writing and research process you have to spend a lot of time hanging around in football clubs but i, I presume not no we did that we did actually we did we did a lot of research and we, we went to a few professional clubs and you know spent a weekend once with one club and it was kind of it was sort of like a dream come true it was kind of hard to not grin through it all like some of the people we were talking to and the people who gave us their time and you know it's unreal it's like a kind of it was like, I feel like a competition winner a lot of the time it was hard to try and focus on the work sometimes and not just stand back and go 
go, God, I'm lucky. Look at how ridiculously lucky I am. But yeah, but we, I think, you know, the, what we were interested in when we were going to those clubs was, you know, when you're a footballer, what you don't do most of the time is play football. So what do you do in most of your life that isn't playing football? And bearing in mind that it's not like, you know, oh, I'm a, I don't know, if I say I'm a professional writer, I could also, I get paid to write something nine to five, but I could also go home and work on my other writing. If you're a footballer, you can't go home and play more football because you might get injured. So you're, and you can't do more exercise in case you get injured. So you specifically can't do the thing that you like doing the most in your spare time. You can only do it, you know, an hour and a half on a, on a week, hour and a half the weekend, maybe hour and a half during the week, and then maybe an hour a day if you're training and not even most training isn't really like playing a match. So that was what was interesting about it. it was finally was talking to people about what they did to kill the time. And I think what's been a big undocumented change in football is PlayStation and online gaming with Xbox. And that has changed, that has genuinely changed the behaviour of young footballers, I think probably more than anything. Like the people we talk to from generations back, you know, they talk about going to the bookies immediately, going to get drunk, you know, having endless affairs, because what do you do to kill the time what do you do and then suddenly it's like actually i can play xbox and i can play and it soaks up hours as i know to my cost it soaks up hours and hours of your life but also something that's quite interesting about it was that it's a way of connecting with your friends that you grew up with. Because that's the other thing about football. Like most people, they grow up and they've still got a kind of group of friends from school or college. Whereas in football, you grow up and you can be sent to the seven winds. You know, you, you, your, your friends get scattered around the world. If, you know, if, you're, if you're unlucky, I mean, around the country, certainly, the guys that are your mates. And so it's a way of connecting with them as well for young footballers. What I should point out is the first thing was also intended to be a comedy. So none of this is really, it's kind of simmering under it. But all I mean, we could do a very good documentary on young footballers, I think. But really, we tried to make the show an out-and-out -out comedy. But this is the kind of interesting stuff we learn that we occasionally try and drop in how do you because uh, everybody writes differently there's a lot of people write by themselves and obviously in the US you've got writers room situation yeah. you guys you guys always write as a, as a pair how does how does the dynamic work do you divide episodes up or characters up or how do how do you go about it well we started um, we started in between us we just ripped off what Sam and Jesse used to do on Peep Show which I was quite involved in so I knew so that's kind of you know I, I was really lucky I worked at Channel 4 as a commissioning editor and I'd seen lots of unbelievable Unbelievable, brilliant writer's work. I think day one, I was given all the scripts to the first series of Phoenix Nights. And I just remember that blowing me away because I hadn't really read a lot of sitcom scripts. I've worked in kind of more entertainment for that. And uh, just, I remember just thinking these scripts are the best thing I'd ever read. I was like, oh my God, how does he, how do they, you know, him and Neil Fitzmaurice and Dave Spikeler, how do they, how do they do this? But so Damon, but then Peep Show became the one I was most comfortable with because I was working closest with those guys. And they don't do it anymore, actually. But what they used to do is get a, uh, an idea of what the show's going to, of what the episode's going to be, give it to a few people, talk to people about it hone it down put it into a kind of scene by scene so half an hour I mean this is channel 4 half an hour 23 and a half minutes I think it was at the time put about 16 scenes break it down about 16 scenes you know more or less and then somebody would take the first four somebody would take the next four first person take the next four and the next person take the last four and then you'd, you'd write those individually even though you'd gone through what was going to be in them you just type them up individually put them back together and then rewrite and rewrite rewrite and constantly rewrite so that's kind of Sam and Jesse I think in the last few series of Peep Show used to individually write scripts but me and Damon stuck with that format really where we just write a quarter we'd write a half in quarters if you like and then redo it and I think that it's worked pretty well for us because I can't I think in the whole of the in-betweeners even the films I can categorically state that I know one joke I wrote there's one joke I can say I definitely know that's mine the other and it's often Dome and I having arguments where we're sort of saying no that's yours no, that's yours no, that's one of yours but uh, yeah and it's nice cause it means you kind of genuinely end up with a script that's genuinely written by both of you because you you know you redraft so many times going back in time to, to the start the in-betweeners which has obviously been a huge hit and like you say spawned movies and uh, it's 
sort of become part of the cultural zeitgeist, you know, people yeah. recite lines and everybody knows scenes and just sort of part of the everyday banter. Now, how did you go from, like you say, working at Channel 4 and working on Peep Show and things like that to getting that off the ground? Well, I think it was my boss at Channel 4 at the time was Caroline Leddy, who's the head of comedy. He's brilliant. I've been there nearly four years and I'd kind of had enough. I was a bit, it was a bit, it was one of those things where I, I think commissioning is a brilliant job to work in. And I, I met so many brilliant people and I've never met Robert Popper, who does Friday Night Dinner, and me and him had offices next door to each other. And people genuinely didn't know who was Ian and who was Robert in the Channel 4 building because we just hung out together all the time. And, you know, and so many brilliant people came through the doors and so many, got to work with so many creative people. And and yet, I think, I wasn't very, oh, I, was pretty about, I, wasn't, I think on my 30th birthday, I was still at Channel 4. And I just thought, I'd like to try and write something. And, you know, Robert was writing stuff while he was working there, but I was so lazy. I was like, if I, unless I quit this job, I'm not going to do anything. Because this job, I, and they actually, they offered me a pay rise. And I, I didn't own a flat, or I didn't even own a TV. I didn't really have anything. But they offered me a pay rise. And I remember thinking, if I take this pay rise, I'm never going to leave. I'm never going to write anything. And then one day I'm just going to be sacked and it's going to be over. And I'm never going to be the head of the BBC. I'm not, I'm just not, you could just tell in that building who was cut out for kind of, you know, the corporate side and who wasn't. And I just, you could, you know, I just wasn't, I just wasn't. And again, not in a, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think it was like, oh, I'm super cool as I wasn't. I just wasn't very good at it, you know. And so I just thought, okay, I've got to leave. So I kind of quit. And Caroline Leddy was like, well, have you got any plans? Have you got, do you know what you're going to do? And I said, no, I'm going to try and write something. She said, okay, well, let's talk about it. What do you want to write? And I said, well, I'd like to write this idea. And I'd like to write it with Damon. And she said, okay, well, here's a script commission, you know, and it wasn't very much money. Again, I knew how much script commissions were. And I'll tell you, it wasn't, it was like the bottom, it was the cheapest level of script commission you can give. And so that was that. So we left and then we started a production company, adorably, just me and Damon, um, with lots of help from people. And yeah, and then we kind of wrote this script just so we didn't die wondering, you know, just thought, let's scratch that itch. Let's try it. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And it didn't really. We, we handed the script in. Everyone said they thought it was funny. Shane Allen was there now. He's now the head of comedy at BBC. He was the first person to call me and said, I love it. It's so funny. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God. And Robert Pop was our script editor. So Robert had read it and Robert helped us. You know, and then Caroline read it. So it's great. But I don't think, you know, they were kind of like, we just can't see where we put teenagers on a Friday night on Channel 4 because Friday night was a big, you know, big adult, cool, hip comedies. And like, who's going to watch teenagers? trying to be funny and I was like I think that is a fair point I've just come from commissioning I think I would make the same decision myself so we kind of sat in a drawer and then Danny Cohen took over E4 and they did a commission survey on what people what their target audience wanted what 16 to 24 year old people actually wanted to see and, and the big thing that came back was representation which again I think goes across everything because all those people really want to see is a, a reflection of themselves at times on TV so they can identify with I think that you know that's one of those strange things that I think almost goes back to cave painting, the idea of just like wanting to see yourself reflected in stories. It's such an innate human thing. So they didn't really have anything, didn't really have anything that was doing that. So he commissioned a drama called Skins and then he was looking for a comedy and Caroline was like, well, I've got, I've got this thing in my drawer. Do you want to have a look at it? And Danny liked it and we'd set it in 1989 because that was, we sort of thought it was cool and, you know, and that was the year that made sense to us. And Danny's note was, we'll do a pilot of it, but you have to set it in the modern day and we're like, oh my God, what's the point? Oh my God, our art. Not, not to him, just to ourselves. We're not that brave. And, um, and then we looked at it and we realised that if we just changed It Is 1989, which is the first line of the script, everything else 
else was fine. And the pilot was okay, but something didn't click, something didn't work. And so Channel 4 sat on it for way past the to a deadline of handing it back to us, like maybe nine, ten months. And then suddenly again, Caroline's support, Caroline said, look, if you recast this, we think it might work. So why don't you recast it and make five episodes for E4? <laughs> Which was like, nobody made five episodes. It was like such a, it was like a vote of confidence, but also a kind of vote of no confidence. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll try it. You know, and so that was that. And then we kind of, you know, we made, we ended up making six just because one of the scripts we wrote was so long that they were like, oh Christ, we've written it. <laughs> might as well just cut it in half and make it two yeah and then we and then that was it really and again there's so many other people involved in the process but that was they were the kind of main beats i guess of of how it happened do you uh was there a point where you thought oh we have actually got something here this either in the in the filming or when it went out on air and that you saw reviews or ratings or what or are you still waiting for that point (laughs) no i I remember i I mean i'll I'll go backwards the point i remember thinking oh we've got something here was when i think the dvd of the first film sold like a million copies in the week before christmas that was the that was the only time I was like oh actually okay this might be and that was even after the film had sort of broken all his records and gone out I was like okay maybe we've got something here but it took, it took that long but no there was a I, I, the thing about being a commissioning editor was I commissioned lots of shows and well actually I didn't commission that many shows but I commissioned a lot of sitcoms but to commission a sitcom of that era in Channel 4 and I think they only had about six on air per year it's really hard so you have to be really sure about it and so the ones I commissioned I really loved and I really believed in and I would see them just disappear and, to, and again and I would stand by a lot of those being as funny as the in-betweeners but just not not hitting at all not getting a chance and so I think when, we, when our show went out we sort of thought well we'll try and make it for our friends to like it so we're not embarrassed when we go to the pub and anything above that is really a bonus like it's not gonna I don't think we because again we'd seen brilliant people making shows that didn't succeed or cut through you know and and, and shows that I loved and even like the first first series of Peep Show was a really tough tough sell to get that the second series and they didn't you know, they put it all different times of day and stuff and so I was not we weren't getting ahead of ourselves at all but there was a moment where we had a week's rehearsal in our old offices in Bethnal Green and we had the forecast and I remember them having to stand against the wall for the uh, for a photo for costume I think it was and I remember just thinking oh they look quite funny and I, was, and I almost was like don't don't jinx it don't jinx it put it out of your mind don't jinx it put it out of your mind but that was kind of why the, the DVD sleeves and all that the kind of four of them standing there looking kind of blankly because that was the, that was the image I always remember thinking oh, that looks quite funny they're quite, quite a funny bunch together aren't they look funny and again actually you know I, I think there's, there's lots of people involved in it but they are the four actors of the thing that really makes that show can you um, when you talk about like stepping out of your commissioning editor job and like starting a, a, produ- a production company which is basically yeah. just the two of you you know two men in a room over a pub or whatever is it is it still possible to, to do that in that way do you think because a lot of companies seem to launch now with backing from Fremantle or BBC yeah. Studios come in with some money is it possible to to still do that do you think I don't sense? know I, 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 we, I mean our, we've got a company now Fudge Park which is much much bigger deal than we had with uh, Bark when we started Bark but no I, I, I sort of don't think it is. I think it's. I think the. I think it's almost like people have cottoned on to the idea that actually it's quite a big deal and you need you know I think also because of the different the, the rights and stuff I think broadcasters are expecting you to come to them with more so they're expecting taster tapes or they're expecting books to have been signed and we didn't have any money so we did so we couldn't do any of that and I think that, and at the time that was kind of fine we could just turn up so we've got this idea we talked to this stand up and they want to do this thing and, and also there's more of them now I think and you know more of them with more sort of power and pressure behind them so it's much harder it does feel like a different world I think we were just hopelessly naive but also um, David Grain 
manager and Will McDonald, who ran Monkey, when I when I left, they said, look, we've got offices. If you want to come and use our offices, you can come and use our offices. And I was like, we might be making entertainment shows. We're probably going to make the same sort of thing as you. Isn't that be competition? And they were like, oh, I don't care. It doesn't matter. Just come and sit in the office. So so we did. So, you know, so we just sat in their offices. And it was great because we had a room where we could hang around with people and use a photocopier and use their computers and stuff. And so our startup costs were basically nothing because someone liked us with their mates and did us a favour. And, and that kind of thing is, I think, probably less likely to happen but it was and we were we were genuinely trying to do comedy entertainment we didn't really think of ourselves as a scripted company at the time because apart from peep show we didn't really have much history in that although we our first sitcom we made was called angelo's which was for channel five and it was sharon horgan wrote and starred in that um but yeah no so i think it's it's much i think it's much tougher now and and it and it reminds again because rights have become such a big business i think it reminds me more of what you see in america which is that lots of people you meet have production companies but actually they're all fundamentally owned by some big conglomerate who retains and holds the rights and, and does stuff with it and like, you know i mean is that better or worse I don't know really when i i mean think back to when i was at uni like during the war and all of that um i i seem to remember i i have this sort of image in my mind that channels like bbc2 and channel 4 would have comedy night and there'd be two or three sitcoms you know thursday night is comedy night and all of that and you know we had the office and phoenix nights that you mentioned and all of these shows kind of in my mind on at the same time whereas now it feels like it's much harder to get a sitcom on a mainstream terrestrial channel they kind of get lost in the schedules is that just me pining nostalgically for a time that didn't actually exist as I think it did or, or is that the case you're right about that that is what happened I mean channel four when I was there Friday nights comedy night was a huge thing because of the ad revenue so it became a thing that was like that was a you know they were obviously I think guess they were saying to ABC ones whatever they were doing in certain numbers and again the numbers were those days if your show got 1.2 million it was a total disaster you know 2 million was the benchmark for Channel 4 on a Friday night and most of the comedies hit that and Graham Norton so I mean Graham Norton on a Friday night his chat show paid for every sitcom that you like that's come out of Channel 4 you've basically got in those eras you've got Graham Norton to thank for that pretty much exclusively like I think if Graham Norton wasn't, wasn't getting three and a half, four million viewers for his chat show you wouldn't have had Garth Marenghi like, it's pretty much as simple as that and because we had to you know we had our, our whole department was all together the entertainment department comedy department was together and we, and we had to balance you know our ratings and stuff like that effectively I mean I didn't our boss did, my boss did. so they did so so Friday night became a big thing where you know advertisers paid more as I understand it for those slots because they were say ABC ones in, in high numbers but interestingly I think Peep Show went out on a Thursday night I think Phoenix Nights went out on a Thursday night I think Dark Place went out on a Tuesday night but again that was because and again you can see a theme through my work here which was that they didn't really have confidence in them to do 2 million viewers so they kind of put them in other places and the BBC you know it was it was actually almost like BBC versus Channel 4 on a Friday night so I think the BBC then moved to a Monday night maybe BBC 2 moved to Monday night maybe or maybe a Thursday but yeah there was a definite time where it was Friday night flicking between 4 and 2 What's the situation now? Is it, is it much more difficult to get a comedy away with a terrestrial broadcaster or how, how do you yeah. cut through in the present environment? It seems like it's all streamers and like distant satellite channels for- Somebody in the, in the channel said to me that they look at the broadcast of a sitcom as advertising for the iPlayer or for the 4OD or whatever like it's kind of you know I grew up on overnights you can't judge it by those overnights anymore you've got to look at what it does on those on the platforms for for the networks and I think that's probably better for comedy than it used to be because in the old days the comedy went out if you didn't get enough viewing figures you'd never hear of it again it was gone forever whereas now actually it can kind of go out you might hear about it six months later someone might go oh my god I've watched this great thing and they might tweet about it and suddenly it gets a second life in things you know like it 
there are lots of shows I think that have had a because they still existed on the but I think the end of the fucking world was sort of like didn't do much when it went out on Channel 4 and then suddenly because of Netflix is this huge hit it's come back Channel 4 is a big thing what I feel heartened by for that retrospect thinking about the shows that I made for people was that if something is good people will and can now find it I think so that's a good thing I think I wanted to um, ask about social media and its yeah. effect both on people that write comedy but also people that commission it because often if you're I mean madness lies within but as a show starts you can look on twitter and two minutes into episode one of a new comedy people are on twitter and i just does that spook commissioning editors and what effect does it have on you as the writer or or do you just is it just easy to ignore my my views on social media are i'm yet to see any long-term good from any single part of it i can't see anything good in any of it that's ever come out of it like again it's it's almost like a weird experiment with smoking that we're all doing so like it's like like the 1920s it's like you're smoking how are you smoking a day you smoke a lot yeah yeah, doing a lot of smoking, doing a lot of smoking. How's it going? How's it going? And maybe hopefully in like 20 years' time, they're going to look back and go, what were they doing? Their mental health, how did that deal with them? So, but I'm very, I'm on Twitter most of the time because I think I got on it because Graham Linehan was on it 12 years ago, I guess maybe 10 years ago. It's so many hours of my life. And he was like, yeah, it's great. You know, do a bit of writing, go on Twitter. Someone's making some jokes. Someone's linked to a funny article. It's really good for the sort of creative process. I was like, oh yeah, it's great, isn't it? And then sort of, I look at it now and it's like, a, it's literally a war zone. You're like, this is incredible what's happening here. But obviously I'm quite lonely at times writing, so I'm quite addicted to it. So, and I, I, I've met lots of nice people on there actually, but long-term social media is a bad thing. And, and then to, to actually answer your question, normally what I would say is I don't read the reviews, I don't read Twitter, and it doesn't bother me, which is a lie. I would read the reviews, I would read Twitter, I would search Twitter obsessively, and I would remember every single thing for the first team because it came out of the blocks with such abuse I actually didn't read the reviews and I didn't go on Twitter looking for it and I didn't bother so it's kind of the first time I've ever done that and it hasn't really affected me one way or the other. Like, I'd kind of, i like to feel that people were enjoying it, but the sort of initial run of abuse I got, I suspect that they probably are. And I know the viewing figures and stuff. So it's kind of, it does affect you. Because I think, unless you're being very dishonest, if you're in this business, I think you want people to like you or something you make. That's sort of why you're doing it. Otherwise, like, otherwise, you just write a comedy script and just put it next to your computer and then just write another one and put it next to your computer. Like, you want things to, you want to get a thing out there and you want people to kind of enjoy it. To continue, my quite long boring answer comedy I think gets a particular hammering because my theory on this is that if you look at dating ads right not that I do particularly regularly but it used to be GSOH good sense of humour everybody on the planet thinks they have a good sense of humour nobody if you said to anybody have you got a good sense of humour they're going not really no very bad bad sense of humour not particularly good sense of humor, not particularly bright not a very good sense of humour like nobody says that everybody thinks their sense of humour is great and so when you make something that's comedic and you put it out there as a comedy particularly this sort of stuff we do which is like this is supposed to be funny if people don't find it funny they, it's almost that it offends them it's almost like you're personally attacking their sense of stuff and what you think that's funny you know, I don't find it funny therefore you're an idiot you're wrong an idiot, an idiot because you you think that's funny I don't think that's funny and I think it, because humour is such an integral part of people's self view you know view of themselves that I think it becomes much more heated and it becomes and people get much more angry about it because they see something they don't think is funny as a, as a personal insult almost. and so I think you get you you get a lot more of a hand. Give dramas, you don't get a lot of people being quite as rich. You're like, Downton Abbey? 
Call that an abbey? It's not even an abbey. You don't get a lot of that. How's life for a writer under lockdown? Actually, I should imagine it's, it's quite productive, isn't it? Forcing you to stay in the house for, for long periods of time, or have you gone a bit stir crazy? Um, well, I got off to a flyer, actually. It was it was fantastic to begin with. Again, I'm in, I'm in LA, and if you have an agent in LA, I've got a very nice agent, and what they do a lot of the times, they set you up on meetings. The whole sort of city revolves around meetings, and mostly they're pointless, and mostly no one's heard of you, and mostly no one's watched anything you've ever done. But your agent would have pulled a favour to get you in to go and see the vice president of something at Sony. But that what that means is you have to spend an hour driving there, an hour just talking for nothing, then an hour driving back. So you lose at least three hours a day. So, so the lockdown was fantastic for me. I was like, great, I'm in LA with my family, but I can't, I don't have to go anywhere. So I can get some work. So I got off to a flyer and I wrote a load of scripts and I rewrote things I supposed to have done. And, and then I think like a lot of writers, I'm not particularly sensitive, but I think you do get to a stage where you are like, like taking in what's happening in the world is a bit hard. I think when the rioting started in LA and we were under a curfew, and at the moment the idea that they're sending unmarked FBI or police agents into various cities to arrest people is kind of, it's a little bit stressful and, it, and it's a little bit hard to concentrate on writing jokes when you think that maybe the country's about to have a fascist takeover. So it hasn't been the coronavirus so much as a sort of coronavirus mixed with impending uh, authoritarianism, I found it. How do you think, because scripted obviously drama and comedy that's a lot of people on set a lot of money and quite a long production time compared to say factual or reality given the how long this thing's dragging on and the production shutdown and also the financial challenges that broadcasters are going to face how do you see the scripted and the comedy industry in television coming out of this through 2021 and beyond I mean well I mean a friend of mine is shooting a series in New Zealand right now so because the New Zealand government got on top of it they're shooting without any kind of real restrictions really so it can happen another another friend of mine is going to be shooting a big film in uh, Australia so I think the problem is that the, the two countries I work in the UK and the US have been two of the worst about dealing with it and so I don't know what's going to happen but I think again the, the problem is when you have you know, populist governments and people who don't want to tell you bad news is they're not going to be sensible they're not going to suddenly be sensible about it and go look I know everyone else in the world is making TV but we're not allowed to make TV because we haven't got this under control yet they're going to go fine open up yeah it's fine oh you have to do this you have to be a distance a bit of this a bit of that I think it's just gonna I think it's gonna at some point everyone's just gonna go back to work I mean the, the issue really is a kind of a backlog I guess like it was hard and when we were shooting the first team it was very hard to find people because there was so much work I think it was the busiest period for production in the UK had ever been was like last September and so I think there's going to be a sort of backlog of uh, stuff waiting to get made and obviously then broadcast and, and we'll see what happens Ian Morris UK Indie Zigzag Productions is an unscripted specialist behind series including Fox reality show I Want to Marry Harry and documentary Killing Michael Jackson. The London-based company has recently returned to production on new female football talent search format Ultimate Goal for British Paynet, BT Sport and Dutch 4K UHD specialist Insight TV. Chief Executive Danny Fenton spoke with Clive Whittingham about the series, commissioned before the coronavirus pandemic hit, returning to work and his fears for the future of the TV business in the wake of COVID-19. A couple of years ago, we made a show looking for the next Jamie Vardy. Um, Jamie Vardy, the 
Leicester and England footballer who went from being a factory worker to a Premier League winner, I think, within the space of five years. And while we were making that, we noticed the sort of rise of the of the female game and the women's game has turned professional in, in most countries now. So we thought, what a great show it would be to see if we could find the next female football star. So Ultimate Goal was born as the love child of uh, BT Sport and Insight TV. So BT Sport, who uh, have the rights to the Women's Super League in, in, in the UK, uh, and Insight, a 4K UHD channel that uh, have targeted football as one of the areas that they wanted to focus in on. And it felt like for them, uh, women's football was, was a great area to go into. And of course, because the women's game has only just sort of taken off professionally, um, it feels like there's a real opportunity to find women who are currently amateur and give them the chance to become professionals. And how does the format work? Is it a weekly elimination with judges and that sort of thing? Or is it is it slightly different? It's more of an organic format. So, you know, we want it to feel real and the, the end results to feel real. So we, um, we are actually selecting 28 women and girls who have got the potential that, we, we, that we've already sort of uh, tested them. And they will then go to training camp. And then the final 14 will then go to St George's Park which is the, the home of England men's, women's and all the youth teams' training base. And they'll be uh, mentored by leading ex-female uh, players, such as Enya Luca, uh, the Kamita Twins. And, and um, we've also, thanks to BT's in, involvement, got the likes of Rhea Ferdinand and Robin Van Persie, who are going to be offering coaching and me- mentoring. And at the end of the second week at St George's Park, we'll be inviting scouts and coaches from different professional clubs, not just in the UK, but from around the world, to come and look at the players and hopefully offer some of them uh, a professional contract in the women's game. Can you talk us through this sort of development process and the pitch, which I presume was a pre-lockdown thing? I mean, it feels like a natural fit for BT. Did you work it with the broadcaster or were, did you pitch it around? How How's the uh, the development process for this show worked out? I mean, we developed it, as I say, off, off the back of having done a successful male version of it with, with Jamie Vardy and we actually pitched it firstly to Insight TV at, at, at MIP and it really piqued their interest and they said look we'd love to do something in the female game but you know we need a co-production partner and we need some sort of key talent involved and we had previously made football quiz show for BT called Call Yourself a Fan and we, we really like working with BT and they're very sort of open and flexible BT obviously having got the Women's Premier League in, in the UK were keen for support programming and and therefore, it was a, it was a great marriage. And the thing that BT were able to bring was, you know, access to St George's Park through BT's sponsorship of of England, and also access to the talent and a lot of other services that they're sort of giving us in kind in terms of hosts and facilities. And they were a good fit. You know, BT and Insight had been trying to find projects to do together previously, so it was the right project at the right time. I say the right time. You know, we were commissioned and we were in pre-production when the pandemic hit. Probably fortuitously, we weren't in physical production as in filming, but we were in casting. So like a number of our other projects and probably like a number of other people's projects, we were put on pause. And I'm pleased to say we came out of pause and we filmed a promo at St George's Park with with the key talent as a as a shout out to try and get uh, girls and, and, and female players 
to take part. And we've got the production team back on board. We're in the office. I'm, I'm speaking from our, our office at the moment. So it feels good to have the team back and to be you know, in an office, unlike many other producers and broadcasters. We started filming profiles of, of the players. They're going to visit them in their, you know, in their locations, you know, whether they be you know, soldiers, nurses, lawyers, whatever they happen to be. So getting background stories. And then we will move up to St George's Park so we're we're moving at quite a pace and we're also for, fortunate in that when we started production because it was pre-pandemic our insurance policy covered us for the event of a force majeure of a pandemic so we are covered for that eventuality which means we can move back into production relatively smoothly but same time taking all the covid precautions that we have to take but in actual fact filming at st george's park which is already a covid bubble means that once the players move in there once the production team move in there we'll be pretty much based there for the duration of the production we've seen the challenges with putting football on behind closed doors marry that up with television production it sounds like a bit of a logistical nightmare albeit it sounds like a few things have fallen into place for you how does it work on a practical level you know putting a show on like that and, and filming it with uh with every, all the restrictions and everything around it? I think, you know, as far as football's concerned, football's probably set the highest bar of COVID protocol of any industry. And you would say that football's been very successful in terms of the way it came back and it completed the season. So television, which also obviously has a very high bar in terms of protocol, in this case, we're able to dovetail the demands of television protocol with the already existing football protocol. So I personally was quite surprised that we were able to get into St George's Park so easily but I think it's because they've already set a protocol there in place that makes filming there easier than, than in most other locations. Speaking more generally rather than just about this show how have you found 2020 as the uh, the owner and operator of, a, of an independent production company I mean you obviously had plans at the start of the year how has it how has it been for Zigzag over the past eight months amongst all of this? It's been challenging. I mean, I think it would be disingenuous to say otherwise. I get quite frustrated when I listen to a lot of webinars and, and, and when I've listened to C21 uh, FM, when people come on and say how great it is and how they've never had, had it better. I just think offering false hope is actually dangerous. I know people want to be positive, but, you know, I think you've got to be realistic. We are still in the middle of a pandemic. We're fortunate compared to a lot of other industries. You know, if you look at retail or hospitality uh, or many other industries who have been completely crippled by this, at least in our industry, there are things we can be doing. So at ZigZag, because we're an independent company, because we've been around a reasonable time, we've got quite a big back catalogue. We've been fortunate that we've been able to sell some of our back catalogue or reversion or repurpose our programming. So we've been industrious during lockdown. Um, that doesn't mean that we haven't had to furlough people and it doesn't mean that it's been incredibly difficult. You know, we had, I think, five shows that were in some form of production before lockdown, either in pre-production, production or post-production. The majority of the ones in production did get put on hold because that was the same for everybody. As well as Ultimate Goal, we've got another, another show that's in production at the moment, which feels good. And we actually, we sold something new, brand new during the lockdown, which is mainly archive based. And that felt an incredible result. I mean, to sell something new during this period, I think is a massive achievement. Delivering it is even going to be an even bigger achievement, but it, it is doable. But I think, you know, all in all, it's one of the most uh, testing times that we faced in our industry. And I feel that 
in many ways, the smaller companies or the medium-sized companies of which I would consider ourselves to be a true independent company probably has got more chance of, of benefiting during this period than the so-called super indies. I, I, I actually think big you are, the harder you fall. And I think for the for the bigger companies, for example, Vanishay, merging with Endemol, that's a massive challenge at any time. But at a time like this when, you know, with big overheads and big debts to service, I wouldn't want to be in their shoes. And I, and I think it's, it's actually easier for the smaller, medium-sized companies to pivot, to, to, to lower the overheads, to be more flexible. And I've always been a great believer in uh, our industry being a meritocracy. And so I, I think there's there's going to be more opportunities for the, for the SMEs than, than actually probably the bigger companies. You mentioned that you'd been quite fortunate with the insurance situation on your BT series. Obviously, that isn't the case now. Insurance has been a big thing that PACT have been campaigning on. What have you made of that situation? Was the government help quick enough in coming? Well, for, I mean, for full disclosure, I also am on the board of PACT, so I wear two hats, and I know that PACT has been lobbying the government you know, for several months to try and act upon this. The French government acted a lot quicker and got back into production a lot quicker. I think, yes, it's been slow. It could have been done quicker. I think it was inevitable, and I think it was a necessity because the amount of business the TV and film brings to the economy, they had to clear that logjam. And the logjam was the insurance issue. And, you know, and, and again, speaking from first-hand experience, for new productions that we were looking to start, it was impossible to get insurance. So the only way to get through that was for the government to, to underwrite it. And I think that, I'm hopeful, will start production up again. But I, I think we're, we're, you know, we're an unscripted company. I still think it's a lot easier for unscripted companies and for scripted companies. You know, that might be an opportunity for us. But even with the insurance cover, I think there are so many issues that the scripted industry faces that they're going to take a long time to catch up. Will the whole thing make you change your um, strategy with planning future productions? Would you look to do more things domestically than internationally, for instance? Because obviously international travel is going to be challenging for some time for productions. I think it's forcing us to change our strategy. Now, one of the shows that got put on hold is a medical series that we've been filming for a number of years. And it involves filming in a lot of third world countries and a lot of hospitals. Filming in third world countries and in hospitals is almost probably the worst case scenario right now. So there are, there are certain productions that just are going to be very, very, very difficult to deliver. And I suppose that also influences the development process. And we start to steer ideas more towards domestic-based ideas or studio-based ideas or ideas that can be shot in a COVID-friendly universe because, as we all know, until there's a vaccine, it hasn't gone away. So we've, we've got to think carefully about can we deliver the thing that we're pitching? One thing's for sure is that most broadcasters don't want shows that are related to COVID and they don't want shows that are filmed on on Zoom because people are already exhausted by that. But we've got to think kind of quite cleverly about what what we can deliver and and how we deliver it. So it's an interesting... circle to square or, or square to circle whichever way around you're doing that there's there's a lot of hours and slots to pitch into because a lot of productions have fallen over but tariffs because of the ad market have fallen away is is that what you're finding a lot of opportunity but you, you're going to have to produce for a lower tariff than you otherwise would have it's a bit of a seesaw Clive because I think you're right you know ratings have never been higher on most of the terrestrial broadcasters but the ones that are you know ad supported especially in the UK channel 4 ITV Channel 5 are are really feeling the pinch. Sky, less so because they're more subscription funded than they are ad funded. And Sky have launched a number of new channels, so they are 
are looking for content more aggressively. I think, you know, for a company like ours, I'd like to think, you know, can deliver high quality programming at a cost-effective price. That might be an opportunity, especially in the unscripted universe. I am finding there's more appetite for brand-funded content now than there has been before. It was always slightly dismissed as a poor relative previously, but now I'm finding certain broadcasters saying, if you can bring a brand, you, you know, you'll go to the top of the pile. And I'm, and I'm engaging more with, with brands and brand agencies. So I think also brands are moving away from the traditional slot advertising and looking at funding and owning IP. So I think we're, we're going to see a real push, more branded content on the, on the commercial broadcasters. The BBC obviously is less affected um, than the commercial broadcasters, but then there's also feeling the squeeze, you know, on the on the license fee. So it's um it's definitely a time of flux. But I've also found we're doing more business in America than than before. Um, even though we can't physically go there, the American broadcasters have lots of holes to fill. And thankfully, they you know they're looking to the UK, where bizarrely we actually have more flexibility of filming than, than they have right now. So I think right now there's definitely an opportunity in the US for UK producers and commissioners, both in the UK and the US, are more accessible now than they've ever been. Ordinarily, you know, it'd be difficult to get in front of somebody, but with people in in lockdown and and working from home, you can get in front of people more easily than, than, than ever before. It's, uh, it's kind of preempted my next question, really, because obviously there's a huge television event circuit. Do you see that circuit coming back in the same way? What effect has it had on ZigZag not being able to go to those networking, those cocktails, those events? And will that circuit come back in the same way that it went away? And do you think we're all just going to get back on the plane as soon, soon as we're able? I think it's hard to know right now because you know a lot of the key markets are the ones coming up. You know, so Mitcom, Real Screen, NAPP, you know, the, 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 those are just three that you and I probably would um, attend every year. And I personally think that online versions of them aren't particularly appealing. Um, I, I'm sort of, I've reached saturation point on, on webinars at the moment. I think being able to get FaceTime, albeit by video call, with buyers is good. I suppose the thing that you miss from the markets is actually not just the socialising, but the random meetings or the random conversations that lead to something. So I think for producers especially, that's a challenge. I think for distributors... You know, a lot of distributors at the moment are saying, oh, it's great, you know, we've, we've never been selling more. And this this goes back to my point about people being, what I would say, falsely optimistic. They can't see the, the wave that's uh, coming in to, 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 to wash over them. And the fact of the matter is, yes, they're selling a lot at the moment, there's a lot of gaps to fill, but they, could, they haven't got any markets that they can sell at. And come 2021, they're not going to have any new programs to sell. So it's going to creep up on them. And I think that is the challenge is how do you find content? How do you make content? But then how do you, how do you best interact with people when there aren't any markets? The short answer to your question is as soon as there is a market that I can go to, I think I will definitely want to go to it because I want to see people, you know, and I having been on that merry-go-round for many a year, I've made friends from, from that, you know, I've got lots of contacts in different countries and I would just like to be able to see those people rather than just communicate to them by video call. I personally think until there is a vaccine, and this is just my opinion, I think it's unlikely there's going to be any markets until sometime next year. 
Um, it depends on now soon the vaccines come in. I'd like to think they would come in in January in time for NAP-P or, or, or real screen. But I think being realistic, it's not just about the UK. It's about all the all the, all the the other countries and where they are at, you know, and whether people are going to want to travel. I was talking to somebody from YouTube the other day, you know, and they've been told don't come back to the office until June 2021. And I think most of the studios and most of the big broadcasters and the big networks, and you know, just aren't going to allow their staff to travel. To try and finish on a, on a, on a more optimistic point that mentioned before there has been talk of it being a bit of a moment for unscripted do you see it that way do you think sort of post writer strike boom might happen again in unscripted and, and what might that look like if it does i think we're already seeing increased demand for unscripted i think most broadcasters networks and even the, you know the, the streamers are recognizing that it's going to take a lot longer to be able to get back up to speed unscripted so yes i do think it's a bit like when there was the right, the right to strike, except you know that there are challenges for everybody in whatever form of production you're in, and getting back up to speed is is, is the biggest challenge. As I said, look, I'm really pleased to be speaking to you now from our office, and and that there are people back here. It has frustrated me, you know, when people just across the industry say, you know, God, I've loved working from home. It's, it's such a great experience. We're not working from home. Uh, as someone said to me the other day, we're at home trying to work during a pandemic. It's a completely different experience. You know, we didn't elect to work from home it, it chose us and i think the sooner people get back into into game mode the better it will be across the board but i certainly think that unscripted is gonna have a have a standing start against scripted and 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 it's you know and it's down to us as unscripted producers to try and capitalize on that but we've got to be creative with it we've got to be creative in terms of coming up with new formats that work around whatever restrictions exist in society as a whole and people have been saying for years unscripted has been the poor relative scripted and that's because nobody's reinvented it or maybe now maybe now the the great revolution caused by covid19 will make that happen danny fenton from zigzag productions That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. Thanks for listening.